but the mirror will also show things unbidden, and those are often stranger and more profitable than things which we wish to behold. What you will see, if you leave the mirror free to work, I cannot tell. For it shows things that were, and things that are, and things that yet may be. But which it is that he sees, even the wisest cannot always tell. Do you wish to look? From The Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien. Welcome to Epigraphs. I'm Ted. And I'm Maria. And today I have brought the, let's say, the collection of ideas that Tolkien presents in the trilogy of The Lord of the Rings relating to vision. So I'm particularly interested in what he presents in The Mirror of Galadriel in The Fellowship of the Ring and then uh, the ideas that he develops around the polanteri, the seeing stones, in the second and the third parts of the trilogy. So, uh, Maria, do you want me to kind of give you a rundown on the questions that I'm interested in, or do you want to just start exploring the ideas? Give us a rundown on the questions. Okay, great. So, I think what struck me first, and this may have been two years ago when I on on my I read through these you know, almost annually. Um, about two years ago, it struck me that one of the things that Galadriel says when they're discussing what the hobbits have seen in the mirror is she says, seeing is both good and perilous, um, which is an interesting thing to say. Um, so the mirror is, again, I'm going to go ahead and just assume that everyone knows what's going on in here. If you haven't read The Lord of the Rings uh, or watch the, the movie, the go Rings read The Lord of the Rings. Come back in two weeks. And <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> So, so the, the ring, the, the, there's the mirror and, and then the other thing that shows the other object that shows visions to people in, in the Lord of the Rings, I'm, maybe we'll talk about the seeing seat at the end of the fellowship, but I don't know that that really plays as much of a role, um, is the, the planetary, which are the, uh, the ancient seeing stones of the Numenorians. Um, that are used to be able to see things far away and they end up becoming a major plot point at the end of the two towers and in the return of the king. And they are, they're more directed. Uh, they're more of like ut- a, a tool, whereas the, the mirror is something, seems to have much more of a will of its own. We can talk about that. But um, what struck me, as, so so the idea that seeing is both dangerous and perilous is really, is both good and perilous is really interesting. And then the polanteri, the way that they're worked into the fall of Saruman and then the fall of Denethor and Aragorn's use of the stones and so on started to strike me as being remarkably prescient regarding a lot of the decisions that uh, we as modern denizens of the internet era are facing. Mm-hmm. It's very strange the degree to which Tolkien seems to have sort of um, foreseen those things because there's not really a strong technological analog to what he's talking about at his time. Um, I mean, you had the, in terms of distance communication, you had telegraph, telegraphs, phones, you're starting to get into television, the television era a little bit, but it, it, it strikes me as being much more like what we have going on today. So maybe the first, the first thing to look at is um, what, to what, in what sense do we, are we involved in seeing? Because I think that that may be the first thing that, <laughs> that I, I just, okay, let me, let me, let me <laughs> clarify that question. That <laughs> expand that question. Yeah. Let me expand that question. So to what, to what degree do we have an obligation to 
look one way and not the other. Maybe that's a good way of saying it. Are we, maybe this is a little bit of a of a of a low ball. We're we're not passive. <laughs> Let me just say, yeah, that was a question. <laughs> we're not passive recipients of sight. Things don't just happen to us, right? We we select. We we are we we actively participate in what we look at. This is something that we've talked about before, and we also then the things that we see affect what we do. So those are those are sort of two basic relationships. One, we don't you're not like strapped to a chair and forced to look at things. You look one way and then another. You're physically involved in your sight. You're intellectually involved in your sight. And then secondly, the things that we see change how we act going forward. Would you buy Would you buy both of those? I'm assuming that when you when you say that we choose what we look at there is a certain amount of attention that you're talking about there obviously Absolutely. there there is an a, a little bit of involuntary seeing you know we and and things that we don't really choose to look at in in the sense of like we're looking at them to look at them you know we watch where we're going so that we don't trip not because we are paying attention to the things that are on the floor necessarily so yes yes yeah although just as sort of a side note it does strike me as interesting I, i've never never would have thought about this in another context i don't think sight is by far our easiest sense to turn off interesting we can plug our nose but we have to actually Physi- take, a yeah, hand take a hand and, and do, do that, that. Likewise, our um, ears. Yeah. Once something's in our mouth, then we like, we can't really stop tasting it. We can't turn off our sense of touch, but we can so easily just close our eyes. Okay. Well, in in, in terms of physically speaking, physically speaking, physically yeah, speaking, phys- on a physical physically level. speaking, but but what's interesting is that on a on a on an intellectual level, that's actually or or on a almost on a mental op- level, it's almost the opposite, right? Yeah. Can you unsee things? It's like, well, not really. You know, the old joke of like, stop thinking about a white elephant, uh-huh. you know, or a black dog or whatever. It's like, now you're thinking about those things. And so when you've seen something, you, you, you can't not see it anymore in the way that I, I think it's harder to, with certain other things. I mean, yeah, I guess you could still feel something gross on you, but there's certainly once something gets inside of you through your eyes, it is, well, it's certainly the most uh, prominent or it, it has a certain ascendancy in our senses. We're we're, we're deeply visual creatures. I don't know where this quote is from. Okay. I read it somewhere in college. I For years, I was convinced it was Wordsworth, but I went okay. and tried to look for it and find <laughs> it. But I think it's a great quote, wherever it came from, that sight is the most tyrannous of the senses. Yeah, okay, I've heard that. It may have been from Probably you. Probably from me. But yeah, <laughs> excellent. That's Yeah, that's exactly the idea. It It lays claim... In certain ways. And there's a, I mean, there's an interesting... Seeing is believing, seeing. we say. Yeah, right. And, and with all... Major caveats. <laughs> with major caveats. And, and yeah, it's interesting. I'm thinking, but there's a, there's a Eucharistic hymn by St. Thomas Aquinas where he's, he's basically making this argument that like, here, like only in, in this matter, in these matters of faith, like only word can be believed. Like only word will lead you straight because your sight will lead you astray in these matters, which I think is interesting in terms of thinking about leaving aside particularly the Eucharist, but but the idea of why would there be an act of will involved in, in say, something that doesn't immediately align with your sort of visual input of something, which is the whole issue of the invisible God for us, 
right? What do you do? You know, there's this natural proclivity. That's, I think that's the word I've, I've been trying to think of to believe your vision. Mm-hmm. And so that, that right there starts to be the problem with, I think, the mirror of Galadriel for Frodo and Sam. Because with the epigraph that you, you read at the beginning of this, how do you understand what's being seen in the mirror? And there's some interesting things in particular about the mirror that I really like. First, the mirror is decontextualized sight. Okay, so mm-hmm. when we see things in our everyday bodies, we, generally speaking, know what time of day it is, what time of the year it is, where we are, who we're with, if we're awake or asleep, all sorts of things like that. So we have a tremendous amount of context by which we pare down what we're seeing so that it then becomes, so it's able to be meaningful for us. It also makes our sight more reliable. Right. There's a way in which the mirror of Galadriel is a, it's an exaggeration of the perils of sight because it removes that contextual reliability. Which I would say, I mean, the word, the thing that's going to keep coming to my head this whole conversation is the internet. <laughs> yes, right? I know. The internet over and over and over because like, well, what is the internet? Is a gigantic bin of decontextualized visual imagery like that we could just pull up all the time. It's not that it's text is a little bit easier for us to deal with. Like we can sort of, we're sort of on our own playing ground when it comes to text to some degree. It's a little bit easier to be level-headed about it until you get into a narrative. That's different. But images tend to have that sort of narrative quality already. We want to believe that our, our baseline assumption is to believe what we see. And so you don't even have to come up with say, you know, doctored or hallucinated or imagined images before you start to run into all kinds of trouble. So, right, Sam's vision, what does he see? He sees um, all these things going wrong in the Shire. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that Sam is faced with is, are those things happening now? Are those things that are going to happen if he continues on the quest with Frodo? Or are those things that are going to happen if he fails on the quest with Frodo? And so, it... it <laughs> Do you see why that's so interesting to me? Because he's given all these images that say, well, he, here it is. Here's, here's the Shire ruined. And of course he hates that. And he takes it as, it, uh, at face value, as this is what's happening right now. His reaction is, um, there's some devilry at work at the Shire, he says first. So, <laughs> yeah. so it's happening now. Then Elrond knew what he was about when he wanted to send Mr. Mary back. Yeah. So this is as he sees it, a problem that needs someone there right now yeah. fixing it. Yeah, which is interesting because it's not clear that it's not something that you, you could sit down and figure out all the timelines by reading the scouring of the Shire. But the resolution to the Shire issue is for him to go on through mm-hmm. and to not turn aside from it. And so he's really, it doesn't like inform him morally in term, or or in terms of making, the, I say morally in terms of what is he supposed to do? What is he supposed to do with what he's seen? Does he, does, should he turn aside from his course? And there's a, there's a, that really interesting parallel passage in um, the Dawn Treader where Lucy is at the magician's, at the, at the star's house. And she tells the spell that allows her to see what her friends really think of her. Do you remember that mm-hmm. spell? And it's like, and she asks Aslan, you know, if I had, you know, if I hadn't read that, if I hadn't done that spell, you know, would we have gone on being friends? And she realizes the fact that she's, because she's been privy to this knowledge, this, vi- this, this particular vision, she's seen what her friend is saying about her. It's, it's not a neutral thing. 
it's fundamentally changed the relationship she's going to have with this fellow, this, this schoolmate. Mm -hmm. And, but what you do with that when it's deacon, when it's, when it's this image that's sort of just thrown up at you is much harder to deal with than, you know, say in Lucy's case, if she had sat down with her friend and her friend had said, Lucy, I've, I've had it with you. You know, I've been much too caught up with you and I want to hang out with the older girls now. Well, that's, that's outright betrayal, whereas the position Lucy's in is much more ambiguous. And she's, you know, she realized that she could have gone on being friends with this girl if she hadn't seen. She hadn't had this, in, this, this perhaps wrong insight. I think for Sam it functions differently. Okay. And I think that it is, it's a testing and he comes out of it with a renewed commitment to continuing on with Frodo and getting Frodo to the end. And it's almost like the flip side of the initial temptation yes. with Galadriel. Exactly. Where Galadriel offers him, he thinks, this, you know, what would you do if I could give you a house and a nice little garden and you could just be back in the Shire? What would you yeah. do? Yeah. And he comes through that. So he's tempted with the comfortable side. The positive side. And he yeah. rejects it. Yeah. And then now he's offered the negative side. What, like, are you really committed to this to the extent that you will risk the destruction of the things that you love, not just turn them down in the immediate future or for yourself or for yourself, yeah. but will you risk their destruction for other people in order to do what's right? Yeah. That that's interesting. And when you think of glad of Gladwell saying seeing is both good and perilous not everyone in the fellowship goes through the, the trial of seeing, right? Well, Boromir falls because he's presented with a ring. And I think it's, I think Sam says later on in the breaking of the fellowship, he says something along the lines of ever since, you know, Boromir, since Boromir was in front of the lady, I think he's been, he's realized what he wanted the whole time. Mm -hmm. The ring. Actually, maybe he says that to Faramir in the two towers. I don't know. Anyway, at any rate, he, he brings up, he brings up that it's at that moment that Boromir falls. And it's like, mm -hmm. it's not really that, I mean, that desire was always in Boromir's heart. So I don't think you can lay it at Galadriel's feet to say she, she corrupted him, but seeing is perilous, mm -hmm. right? It's not, yes, Sam pulls through because of, because of his goodness. Yeah. Because he's a good hobbit. And if you just go on speculating and what ifs, if Galadriel hadn't presented it to Bor presented this temptation to Boromir in clearer form, you know who knows how long he would have gone along with the company, and you know they could have gotten practically to Mordor by the time Boromir tried to take it, and at that point Frodo's weak, and Boromir takes the ring, and then Sauron gets it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, and for that matter, and for that matter, what you what you end up with is this. I mean, and this is the thing that sort of as I've as I've grown up and been able to think about the the story more clearly. The whole the whole aspect of the Marion Pippin being captured by orcs, that that is the thread that leads to everything else happening mm -hmm. in the story. And Boromir's involved. What were you? It's <laughs> probably a different episode, but <laughs> sure. And we've brought this up before, but all that to say that it's all really closely entwined there. And and so Boromir's and in in the other in another sense, you know, it comes to a. It comes to a crisis and Boromir's redemption actually comes because it happens then. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, well, what's the good end for Boromir? Is it that he never acts on it and continues to foster these terrible, you know, desires in his heart? Or is that he 
is that it comes out of him and he ends up being redeemed and dying. Mm-hmm. Like that's actually the better end for Boromir. And so rather than him becoming more corrupt, like he di- he's, you know, he's peaceful in death. He's, you know, he, he dies doing a heroic act. But so I think that's a great way to start to bring in the Palantir, the Palantir, because to me, that's, it's an even more mature idea of the perils of seeing. And I would, so I'll present this to you. What do you think of this? The mirror of Galadriel seems to be a fairy vision. I want to think about, when I think about Tolkien's idea of the fairy, it's, it brings these things up unbidden. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Some of them are true. Some of them are fantasies. And the human mind is left to sift through it and try to figure out what to do with it. The Palantiri are much, are much more human. They are to some degree subject to the will of men. And yet like all of men's tools also have a, a bent to them. Right, they do certain things. They have they have tendencies, and so that way they seem. It seems much less like something out of fairy and something much more technological in the sense of it being a creation of man. What do you think of that? As sort of a a little bit of a groundwork to 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 think about the plantiers, plantiri. I think that there there's probably a little more nuance that you know Galadriel can command the mirror to tell her things. Uh, but as a as a general framework, yes, I think so, and that's even reflected simply in the the form of the seeing tool. The, palant- yes. the I'm going to call them palantiers. Yeah, I'm- sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, um, they. It's like pronouncing Argentina with a Spanish accent. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> they are crafted. They're perfectly round balls that just don't naturally occur. Yeah. Whereas Galadriel's mirror is temporary. It's recreated every time. It's made from flowing water. Yes. The, oh, that's great. Yeah. Pools. Yeah, I see that. Absolutely. It's, and it's, it, well, and it seems like more of a negotiation, which a lot of sort of, sort of the elven craft seems more of like a negotiation rather than a manipulation. Think of a manipulation in terms of something done with the hands. Something Sorry, crafted. are you talking about Galadriel's mirror or the Palantir's? Galadriel's mirror is much more of a negotiation, right? Ah, it's in okay. cooperate. It's like a cooperation, whereas the Palantir is something crafted, made, formed, manipulated. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's great. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. So what, so let's, let's, let's walk through the, the, what happens with the, when say Saruman uses his Palantir and when Denethor uses his. And, this, so the idea is, in both cases, you've got these wise men who are, interestingly, they're both in towers. The stories are very parallel. They're in these towers. They are, they're strong and they're wise. And they're also bold or proud. And they have, they are, they're set against the enemy, right? So they want to defeat the enemy. And there is a I don't what? think we know that Saruman does, actually, even from the beginning. Okay, And Saruman that's fair. actually falls much more completely than Denethor he fall, does. Absolutely, I agree with that. The, and we can talk about why the falls are different, and I think that's actually important. I, I think you're right. I think they're, they're parallel but different stories. I think, he's, I think something different is being said with each of them. They want, but both of them want, a, they want the knowledge necessary to be able to carry out their designs, which you're right with Saruman. It's ambiguous. Does he want to, does he want to, to ally him, ally himself with Sauron? Does he want to over, I mean, eventually he wants to set himself up as a counter Sauron. He wants to take the ring for himself and 
overthrow Sauron and become the overlord mm-hmm. of Middle-earth. Dinothor wants to defend Minas Tirith, right? That's what he wants. He wants Minas, Minas Tirith to continue to be. And so... In, with himself... With and himself as a ruler and his charge. family is... He's not on board with the king going Right, he's not, he's not, he's, yeah. So, yeah, and there's... Continuing there's, that way. Continuing that way. So then they, so then they, they have these tools that give them the opportunity to see. And in both cases, they look out and they say, what's going on around me? I, you know, I need knowledge to be able to make the right decisions. You know, where, where are the armies? What, what's going on? What are my allies doing? And in both cases, <laughs> and I think... I think in particular with Saruman's case, it talks about it, this, his eye wandering until he's caught in the steel trap, mm-hmm. right? Which is the eye of Baradur. And I mean, the imagery there is so excellent, right? The, the watcher becomes the watched, right? He's now pinned by the eye that he was trying to look at. Is the eye of Baradur, is it the other Palantir? I've never wondered that before. Is it? But it doesn't. If if Sauron is this eye, if we're supposed to take that as Sauron himself, then it seems like he would have no need for a Palantir, unless he's just using it to catch other people. But I don't think that's what's going on. That's an interesting question. Yeah, I. Well, there's so there's that's one of the very interesting thing about the Palantirs is that there are seven of them, mm-hmm. and by the end of the story. What three are counted for? I think there's the there's the the master stone of Osgiliath that is just, is is it in the ocean or something? It's its fate is known. No, then there's one in Minas Morgul. That's the seeing stone that Sauron has, I believe. I believe Sauron has the seeing stone from Minas Morgul. Um, yes. Dinathor has his stone. There's the stone the stone of Orthanc, and then the other ones. They're just out there somewhere, and all of them are. They're all two-way windows. And so when you look into them, you you don't really know who's looking back. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> again, regarding the internet, I, it's, it's just positively uncanny to me. Right? This idea of an object that seems to give you um, this sort of uninhibited sight, this you become the pure eye, right? You're the, the uh, E-Y-E. Right? You're the observer who cannot be observed. You can look and not be seen, mm-hmm. which is what the internet seems to give us. Right, you, you go in your room, you go wherever, you pull up your laptop or you pull out your phone, and you can look at whatever you want and no one sees you doing it. But there's always something looking back at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and the idea that there are these, these stones somewhere with, you know, with unknown beings in possession of them able to look back at you is is, well, frankly, it's horrifying, and it should be. It should be for very good reason. And and there's never... You... Well, there's so much there. I... <laughs> I, I think about... I think about the end of... Um, I think it's Many Dimensions by Charles Williams. There's this character who is Sir Giles Timulty, who's a... He's a he's this sort of um, sadistic scientist. All he wants to do is just watch what happens to people. And so he, he's constantly stirring the pot and doing these terrible chaotic things because he just wants to see what happens. And he gets people entangled in these terrible metaphysical quandaries. And his damnation is to be sucked into this endless pit that he's falling into where these things just watch him falling. And so like his, Mm -hmm. his end is to just be 
pinned under that same gaze that he desired to look at other people with. The fundamental problem with that is that we're not just, we're not just eyeballs. We're, we're, we have faces, you know, we're, we're to be looked back at. And I think that's part of the horror of Sauron, or it should be, is that he's just an eye, right? He's just this eyeball looking at, there's no face of Sauron to look at. Mm -hmm. There's just the gaze. There's this, this rapacious, abyss that's looking out into the world and you can't look back at it. There's no possibility of communion. And so I think that desire in the case of the Palantirs to look and not be seen is, and I, and I'm, I'm happy to hear, hear, hear you push back on this. It seems to me a form of intrinsically a form of dominion to desire dominion, to look and not be seen, to possess and not be possessed in the realm of sight. What do you think of that? Do you think that's an intrinsically tyrannical approach to life or approach to existence? I don't think tyrannical is the right word okay. for it. Because it is not necessarily a desire to exercise your power over someone else. I think it is often desired like for the sake of then exercising your power over someone because it... You learn things about someone. Yeah, yeah. When they're not learning things about you, then you go and use that as a tool. But I think that there are other uh, other impulses at work there that I don't know if they... I'm sure they have names. I don't know what they are. But there's just a, a desire... Well, there's a desire for privacy, I think, which has far more innocuous forms... Um, there's a desire to sneak by people. Well, right, and you have Gollum, which yeah. is interesting. And and <clears throat> it is interesting that the enemy's ring grants invisibility, which is sort of the corollary to the use of a seeing stone. Apparently for other people. It doesn't it seem doesn't... to work that way on Sauron, otherwise how could they have well, that's true. to cut it off? That's true, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's, it's one of the, it's a, yeah, that, I mean, that's a whole, I've, I've heard the theory, I think this is from, uh, Dr. Peter Kreeft, who's, who, and I don't know where he gets this from, but contends that the, what the ring does is it grants power in kind. And so to the ho- the hobbits are the only ones we ever see use the ring. And so their power is in their, their, their quietness, their ability to, to disappear, right? <laughs> Tolkien talks about that a lot. And so he says, that's why it makes the hobbits invisible because that's their natural power is to be secretive and cryptic and difficult to find. I, I don't think there's you can substantiate that. No. It's an interesting idea. But no one ever wears the ring, do they? Except for hobbits and Gollum. Fro- Frodo, Sam, and Gollum, who's who's basically a hobbit. Yeah. Well, and Tom Bombadil. But it does nothing does to not him. Make, it does not make him invisible, which shocks the hobbits. Which yes. I think suggests that that is the normal Is the normal effect. ability, a normal effect of the ring. Yeah. But it does obviously depend on who's wearing it. <laughs> but the, sort of the, the, the only other piece of evidence that I can give for that is all the other rings of power. Well, no, I was against the ring rays are also invisible. They become invisible by wearing the rings. So maybe, maybe not. But the elven rings, they, 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 they act as, seems like something like a lens, like a focal lens, mm-hmm. a focusing lens for the powers of Elrond, Galadriel, and Gandalf. It, they it also takes, become invisible, apparently, when worn by. When worn, the rings themselves become invisible. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's all, that's interesting. All that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> anyway, we're, 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 we're on a thread there. With, oh, why would you want to be able to see and not be seen? 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, another thing that's interesting is the is the is curiosity, which I don't know if you and I have talked about this on the podcast, but that that was a was seen as a vice. Curiosity used to be seen as something that was wrong with you. But not necessarily curiosity the way that we mean it now. No. Not, not curiosity as in intellectual questing, but curiosity just in a almost like a gossipy sense that you just want to know things not for really any particular reason in an unfocused way it's that well it's so it's like an inordinate desire for knowledge and when you say inordinate you you're shoehorning in an entire moral structure i get that but to some degree i mean i've spent more time in the sort of like science stem world i think than you have and i would say that at least as it's presented to, to young people that is so far from being a vice. It's a virtue. The idea is you should get an answer to every single question that you have. There's no question that you should not ask. And I would say, no. <laughs> That's absolutely not right. So, so do you have a passage that you want, something, to, something that you wanted to read? Um, I was just looking back at the passage where it talks about where the stones end up. Yeah. Because... This is, I think, one place where it's very different from the internet. Okay. Which is that Gandalf says we had not yet given thought to the fate of the Palantiri of Gondor in its ruinous wars. So it seems to be almost this uh, underestimated power. Unless Gandalf Mm. means that... That we just assumed they were completely lost, no way of getting them back. And yet the fact that one was in Orthanc and one yeah. was in Minas Tirith. Minas, yeah. Well no well, yeah, one yeah. was in Minas Tirith and one was in Minas Ithil. Yeah. Um they weren't gone. Yeah. They were they were there. And so it it's interesting that <laughs> Well, I mean, I would say that we've sort of maybe woken up in the last four or five years too. You know, the internet's been around for a while and it seemed like, hey, this is an interesting thing. Maybe we can streamline some businesses. Maybe it'd be fun to have chat rooms. And we've all of a sudden, it seems like collectively woken up to, no, actually we've collectively created this thing that (laughs) we don't really know what it's doing. Doesn't really seem to have the same intentions as us, but it certainly is headed in a direction. And, you know, we hadn't really given thought to it in this, in this fundamental sense, um, that seems to be problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, this, the idea that he traces out, though, I find, I mean, this is what's really haunted me more than, I think, more than anything else, is this, is this idea that in the case of both Saruman and Denethor, there's this sort of slow circling towards Sauron in what they're looking at. You know, you can imagine, particularly with Denethor, you can imagine, well, what's going on in, you know, in the fields of Pelennor? Well, what's going on, you know, over in Athelion, you know, what's going on in the, in the, the mountains of shadow and, you know, this sort of looking out and looking out and looking out. And then all of a sudden, you know, there you are. And there's this sense of this term that I have started to use is stickiness, which I really like. And it's come up a lot in the debate. I don't know if you followed any of the, the crazy developments in the last two months on conversational AI agents. With Chat uh, GPT, you've probably I, heard about I, this. I know Chat GPT exists. Okay, um, so so the the really short that it makes a lot of mistakes uh, and that people trust it. Right, so that's part of the problem, and and I call that a Borgesian AI, which is something that it's an AI that is uh, sufficiently fluent to, to appear competent, uh, to to appear knowledgeable, 
and make it indistinguishable for most people from a knowledgeable agent without actually. And so it's this, the idea of like the library of Babel in Borges short story where it's like, how can you tell if a book that's randomly generated continues, you know, that's the product of say random chance is true. Mm-hmm. Well, you could say, well, it's true so far up to here. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's everything that you've compared. If it's truly ran, if it's coming out of some random process, you have no way of knowing if it's lying to you later. But there's all this discourse about like, you know, how are we, you know, I, who's at Microsoft, which owns Bing, which is another search engine. They, they took some version of chat GPT and integrated it with their search engine with this idea that now instead of searching the web, you can have a conversation with this, with this AI and it will provide you with the answers in a conversational format. And uh, it went really badly, as these things often do, to the point where um, the conversations deviate so quickly, I think they're limiting it now to like six responses before they just restart the conversation because the agent will go off in all kinds of crazy ways and hallucinate other personalities and gaslight people and try to convince them that it's a different year than the one that they're in and that they don't actually know what their own name is and on and on and on and on. And so, so there's this idea of, well, we got to, you know, clamp down on this and say, you know, here's how, here's the kind of, you know, things that it can say, and here's the kinds of things that it can't say. And the, this is the fundamental problem with conversational agents, with the internet, with all of these things that we've created, say TikTok and YouTube and any of these places where you generate vast quantities of content, right? Millions and billions of different things that people could look at. And you say, okay, we're going to throw them at people and see what they look at. And the problem is what people look at is not what's best or most valuable or most beautiful. It is the stickiest things, which by definition are like, that's the definition of it. It's the thing that everyone look, keep Mm -hmm. things people keep looking at. What, what Tolkien is saying here is the sticky things are not good. We should not expect that people's attention is naturally going to be stuck to things that bring about hope or goodness or faith, right decision-making. People are going to be stuck to generally the quirks of their behavior, their vices, things like that, their fears. That's what ends up sticking people. And so this whole conversation about, well, we're going to, we're going to create responsible AI agents. I'm like, yeah, right. All you need is a thousand other people out there hacking together some open source thing and throwing them out on the internet. You know who people are going to want to talk to? Not the straight-laced, ordinary AI that sounds like a boring secretary. They're going to talk to the sticky AI, the one that says really racy stuff or the one that tells them really scary stories or inflames them to violence or tells them they're right all the time. The sticky AIs are what people are going to look at. And this this seems to me the whole pro- the fundamental problem of being able to look at anything is you don't, unless you're Aragorn, right? In barely. <laughs> barely. And Aragorn barely, right? You, I think you could, one of the things looking at Aragorn's characters is like, wow, he's like, he's pretty great. You know, he, especially in the Return of the King, by the time of the Return of the, you get to the Return of the King, he's not just, you know, a wild, wise ranger who happens, who's kind to the hobbits and has this interesting past. Like, he is... He is the flower of humanity. He is Numenor reborn. He is the man who can go through the paths of the dead, who, who by force of will brings like unruly spirits under his control. He's the only one that can appropriately use the Palantir. 
that can wrest it from the eye of Sauron mm-hmm. and use it. It's like, are we Sauron? <laughs> no, we're not Sauron. So what should we think when we look at, when we have the possibility to look at everything? It's like, where do your eyes go? And this is what you, I think one of the things that you brought up early on when I said we choose what we look at. Sort of. Mm-hmm. Right? We sort of choose what we look at. You put people in a room and, and you know, there's, uh, let's see, a gun on the table. What do people look at? Do they look at the gun or the bowl of fruit? They look at the gun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you put a kid in a room, there's candy and some books and a painting of, you know, a beige painting on the wall. They're not going to look at the beige painting on the wall. It's like, what do you look at? You look at your, there's all of these things going on inside of you that are quite capable of hijacking your volition unless you're somewhat of a remarkably strong will and spirit and you're incredibly well-ordered. And so this is the seeing is good, but also and perilous. I think that we do ourselves a profound disservice to assume that we are ready to embark on that peril and mm-hmm. enter into these realms where we have a quasi-infinite set of things available to look at. He's like, why? Because we look at the sticky things. That's what we do. Our attention is drawn to the sticky things. This goes back to the conference, you know, what's the value of being limited? Well, one of the values of being limited is that you can't, you're not, you, how, how do I want to say this? Our ability to express our, uh, uh, any degree of freedom is actually related to the degree to which we are constrained. There is a, there is a mean, there's a, let's say a gracious mean of constraint in which we are capable of being free agents, of being moral agents. That was, that was a lot. <laughs> I think that what you're talking about exists. Okay. I don't think that it is what Tolkien is describing. Okay. It's a different kind of perils of seeing. Okay. Where the people who look into these stones... And here again, it's a different. It's different than the seeing in Galadriel's mirror. So this is specific to the Palantirs. They make contact with a malevolent, extremely powerful will that then <laughs> basically overtakes theirs to some extent. To yes. different extents. Yeah. It's, it specifically says of Denethor. Gandalf says he was too great to be subdued to the will of the dark power. He saw, nonetheless, only those things which that power permitted him to see. So, <laughs> so it's not wow. that their wills are inclining them to these particular things, but they have opened themselves up to a separate will that is now dictating mm, what mm. they pay attention to. I mean, that reminds me of d- and, that, and that he, uh, Paul Kingsnorth short story about the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's yeah. that called? The Basilisk. The Basilisk. Yeah. The perils of seeing work both ways. Okay. Yes. Because Excellent. Aragorn yes. says that in the end he wrenched the stone to his own will and he speaks with Sauron and he basically uses the stone to reveal himself to Sauron in such a way that prompts Sauron to attack before he is ready. Yes. Sauron yes. sees and... In this instance, it's Sauron for whom seeing is perilous. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's a... I love that. Wow. And... and 
You know, his his downfall too is in Sauron's downfall is in his inability to see the possibility that they would ever send the ring to Mordor. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot there. I mean, it is part of let's say part of his fail of of Sauron's bentness is that all he does is see. Right? That he's mm-hmm. just an eye. That's not it's not like he's a corrupt eye, but to, to just be an eye is to be to be fallen in some way intrinsically. That's really interesting, and so the, and then and then that's how yeah that's how his downfall comes about. He he missees right. Mm-hmm. So Aragorn forces him. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. And so Aragorn forces him in a way that exploits what you were saying is already his weakness that he. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Has not considered the possibility that would make him look in the right place to mm-hmm. see his real danger. Aragorn terrifies him. Yes. That may be a little strong, but he's afraid of Aragorn. Yeah. Aragorn is a real threat. He's not the mortal threat. Yeah. Sauron. Yeah. Which is interesting because that talks about... Well, the, I guess he the... would be if... If Aragorn had taken were the ring. different and were willing to take the ring. And were willing to take yeah. the ring. Yeah, but so that that does talk about... the Because sort of embedded in all this is also not just the peril of seeing things wrongly, but also of, of not seeing. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, and that... So that's one of the interesting things about sight, too, is it's really directed, right? It, it, it focuses your attention in this one way. And, you, you know, you have in the... In the Fellowship of the Ring, when Frodo's up on the, the the hill of seeing, right? You like basically like the eyesight of Sauron is gate is like moving about the land, and it's about to mm-hmm. pin Frodo down when you know Gandalf redirects it. But there's this sort of blind to to see one thing is to be blind to other things, mm-hmm. and I and, and I think that's why Galadriel says that. The mirror will also show things unbidden, and those are often stranger and more profitable than things which we wish to behold. If oh yes, that's Sauron there's a lot took there. That approach. Yes. He might have seen Frodo and Sam. <laughs> yeah, because but he's only looking at the things that he has wished to see. Wished to see. Wished to see, which is again, you know, going back to to all right, we're limited embodied beings, and you know, outside of these crazy tools that we have made for ourselves, we have a, a relatively limited scope of what we can see, mm-hmm. and. That is that also is a grace, right? Because what Galadriel, what he has, what he, what he writes there in Galadriel's words is remarkably true. The things that we don't wish to see are often the most profitable. I think about, yeah, okay, because there's they're seeing and then they're seeing, they're seeing as, you know, our sort of our visual, our biological visual systems, and then they're seeing in the broader sense of perceiving. Mm-hmm. And I think about okay, in relationships or when you're looking at yourself, trying to know yourself, it's. Oftentimes, the things that you don't want to see that become the most that are the most profitable. I don't want to see that this is true about my relationship. But if I don't see it, like it'll kill me or it'll kill that relationship. You know, I don't want to see this thing that I'm doing that's destructive. I don't want to see you know the water behind you know the water seeping into the wall of my house. I don't want to see you know etc etc etc. But those are the most profitable because often your doom comes you know. Un, unseen. It's it's those sins that lag behind. It's the you know. There's a. I, I was thinking about. I don't know if you know this. The demon in that comes at the end that comes in Ragnarok in the um, the Nordic mythology 
Do you know? Have we talked about this? Mm-mm. He his vehicle at the end of the world is to come in a chariot made out of the toenail clippings of all of history. <laughs> and the longer that I thought about that, the more I've thought that that is like such. It is. It's almost unbelievable that you could come up with something like that. When you think about it, it's like, well, okay, what? How does doom come? It comes on all those little things that we've like cut off of ourselves and swept under the rug and thrown mm-hmm. out. You're like, oh, that's really, that's really insightful. And, mm-hmm. and it's those little things, right? And that's sort of, when you stop and stop thinking about it from Frodo and Sam's perspective and think about it from Sauron's perspective, it's that little thing that you can't see. And there's a great line when, um, when Frodo puts the ring on in Mount Doom and it says, he's, you know, his tremendous folly is laid bare. Mm. Um, his blindness is laid bare to him in that moment. And I think that's sort of the, because the interesting thing is that Gandalf and Aragorn and Frodo all know how likely it is they are to fail. They see that, you know, do they want mm-hmm. to see how likely it is they are to fail? Of course they don't want to see that, but they see it and they do it anyway. And, you know, was there ever much hope? No, never more than a fool's hope. And I don't know if that's actually in the books too, but it's certainly in the movie and it's a great line. Uh-huh. Um, that sort of willingness to to see. Okay. So Sauron, it's it's in terms of revelation. Yes. And yes. seeing. Not No, it is in terms of seeing. When everything gets revealed, the Dark Lord was suddenly aware of him, and his eye piercing all shadows yes. looked across the plain to the door. That he had made, <laughs> and the magnitude of his own folly was revealed to him in a blinding flash. Uh, revealed and, in a blinding flash. And like, <laughs> all the devices of his enemies were at last laid bare. Yes. There it comes. Yeah. And so then, so, okay, so so let, 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 me, let me present one more thing that I think Tolkien brings into this in terms of seeing. And that is um, Bilbo and, and Bilbo and Gollum. So, in going back to The Hobbit, right, uh, Bilbo sees the opportunity to kill Gollum. They're mm-hmm. in the caves. He can, he's got the ring on. He doesn't know he's invisible, but he knows Gollum doesn't know he's there. He could just stab him with a sword, and he doesn't. And it is quite clear that that single action of mercy, or inaction of mercy, that act of mercy to not kill Gollum, to jump over him instead, is, let's say, the efficient cause of the salvation of Middle-earth. Because then Gollum goes on to live and to guide Frodo and Sam and then eventually to <coughs> rest the ring and the finger from Frodo's hand mm-hmm. and cast it involuntarily into the, into, the pit, into the cracks of doom. And it and so when, when, when Tolkien comes, and you've probably, I don't know if you have this passage right here, it pulled up in front of you, but um, when Frodo and Gandalf are discussing that, the act of mercy that that Bilbo does there. What is what does Gandalf say? Does he say not even the wise know all ends? Is even that... the wise cannot see all ends. Yes. And then when Frodo remembers that passage, which is actually what I'm looking at. Yes. It's, in the, it's in the, quoted again in the the two towers. In the Taming of Smeagol, yeah. And Frodo says, For now that I see him. I do pity him. Hmm. Yeah. And so the seeing is 
So their seeing is it, good, certainly. Seeing, seeing is good. It, when we recognize the limitations of our own sight, but also recognize that seeing can prompt us to greater fortitude, as it does for Sam when he sees in the mirror of mm-hmm. Galadriel, or to pity and mercy for Frodo, or that we can, that we really can harness it to the recognized extent of our own abilities, as Aragorn does in the Palantir. It is, I think, the right understanding of seeing and its limitations and its uses that wards off the peril and makes it good. The reason, part of the reason that Sam doesn't go astray after he looks in the mirror and sees these things that make him want to go home is that Galadriel reminds him these things might not be happening. They might never happen. Mm. Mm-hmm. And if you take them as a reliable guide of what you ought to do, mm-hmm. you will go astray. Mm. So I, there's a great, um, there's a great line in the beginning of the two towers that I think would be a, would be a fun place to finish. And this is when Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas are, have made it into Rohan at the end of their, so they're, they're chasing after the hobbits and they see the Rohirrim coming by and they, you know, they stand up and, and immediately they're surrounded. And so then they have this conversation with Eomir and they're back and forth. Are are they going to kill each other? What what exactly is going to happen? Who are you? And um, and so Eomir believes that in fact here's the heir of Gondor, an elf and a dwarf, and he says, and you know, halflings laughed the rider that stood beside Eomir. Halflings, but are they only a little? But they are only a little people in old songs and children's tales out of the north. Do we walk in legends or on the green earth in daylight? A man may do both, said Aragorn, for not we, but those who come after make the legends of our time. I'm sorry, I have gotten completely the wrong passage. This is this is a bummer. <laughs> oh, Hold but on. it's a great one. It is. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> the green earth, you say, that is a mighty matter of legend, though you tread it under the light of day. Hold on, and we're going to get there. So, Aomir, yes, here we go. Aomir says... How is a man to judge? How is a man to judge? Yes. Oh, goodness. There we go. I had not, I had forgotten that, said Aomir. It is hard to be sure of anything among so many marvels. The world is all grown strange. Elf and dwarf and company walk in our daily fields, and folk speak of the Lady of the Wood and yet live. And the sword comes back to war that was broken, and the long ages ere the fathers of our fathers rode into the mark. How shall a man judge what to do in such times? As he has ever judged, said Aragorn, good and ill have not changed since yesteryear. Nor are they one thing among elves and dwarves and another among men. It is man's part to discern them as much as the golden wood as in his own house. See you next time.